God spoke and communed with Adam face to face. So it, it wasn't like, like we think of God right now and how God speaks to us. Most of the time when God speaks to us, it's through one of three ways. It's either by his spirit when we're in prayer. You know, for me personally, that seems to be how the Lord speaks. If he just wants to say something, he just says it in prayer, and I hear the voice of God. Um, or he could speak a lot of times through his word. And then other times he speaks through, through a prophetic word from somebody else or through a man of God or a woman of God that the Lord sends your way. So that's how God speaks to us now. But in the very beginning, God spoke to Adam face to face. Genesis 3 and 8 says this, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So a couple things about this verse. First of all, there was an audible sound that Adam and Eve heard. Apparently, this was heard on a regular basis. In the cool of the day, likely, likely first thing in the morning as the sun was rising when the dew was still on the ground. And Adam and Eve would have a little garden walk with God. Wouldn't that be neat? Secondly, there was a physical presence of God or manifestation of some kind that they recognized and had experienced before. Now, we know that because they hid from it when they heard it and when they saw it. And thirdly, it says that God was walking among the trees of the garden. So this was no mystical wind blowing with the voice of God. Um, you know, this is sometimes whenever it's portrayed by certain people or in books or on, in, in other areas, uh, you know, people tend to think that it was just the wind and that Adam heard the audible voice from heaven and it was the wind blowing among the trees. But, um, but it says that at God was walking among the trees of the garden. He was walking with Adam. So it was no mystical voice. It was the actual spirit of God speaking with Adam. So there was a tangible, physical, tangible presence, I believe. Now, God called Adam and Eve. It said he called them. In the Hebrew, this phrase called is korah. And it means, listen to this, to call out boldly or to beray, the root of this word is through the idea of accosting a person. Now, it's used in other places in the Old Testament. It's not always used the same way. But in this particular instance, it's, it's, it's a summons to judgment, which is why Adam and Eve hid from God. Has anybody, any parent, any mother summoned their kids to judgment before? Moms have this down really well. Mothers can look at a kid because we don't want other church folks to know that we're angry in church. Right? Especially when we're really angry. Mothers can do this. Mothers can give a child a look that to everybody else says, I am full of the joy of the Lord. But to that kid, it's saying, I'm going to kill you when we get home. And she does it all with a smile on her face and a gleam in her eye. But there's something about that look that mothers have, can have. And, and uh, I remember, you know, whenever I was, I was a kid, my mother was, was not so subtle about it. <laughs> you know, I remember whenever I was acting up in church as a kid, and my mother would pinch the hair in the back of my head. Just through, you know, just wrap her arms around. It seemed like her arms were 12 feet long. I could be sitting on the opposite end of the pew. And somehow her hand would find me and just, and straighten me up real good. 
or mothers suddenly become superhuman as their arms can dig into their children's arms. Hands can dig into their arms like this. And, and so uh, it's that look. Or dads. Dads are not, you know, dads are not subtle about it. Get over here. It's a summons to judgment. That angry dad look. And so this is what I think God was doing to Adam. Where are you? It wasn't a question for God. It was a question for Adam. Look at where you are. Look at what you've done. This would be the last time that Adam and Eve would ever experience this type of manifestation of God in their physical lives as far as we know. Soon there would be a hostile environment that would take over the entire earth. Weeds and rocks would prevent the earth from easily producing vegetation for Adam. Tornadoes, hurricanes, storms, earthquakes, tsunamis, sadness, depression, addiction, murder, sin, pain, all would soon take over the earth as Adam lost his authority. And look at the condition of our world today. It begs the question, where is God? Where is he in 2020? From the time of Adam until Christ came, God had a temporary home in the earth. First, we see him dwelling in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in Israel through their journeys in the wilderness. But God, the Bible says that he hid or veiled himself in these things. So the cloud wasn't God. The cloud was a manifestation of God or God was in the cloud. There was probably... Um, you know, if, if, you're in, if you're in the middle of the desert and you've got a pillar of fire, fires keep the animals and the bad stuff away, right? If you're, if you're by day traveling and the sun's beating down on your head, a, a cloud is really nice. So, so there, was, there was probably a logical reason for this as well that provided for them. But it was a physical manifestation of God, that, but God veiled himself in these things. They never saw the fullness of God. They just saw the cloud that hid God. So next we see him in a veil, behind a veil in the tabernacle of Moses. And you know that the high priest could approach it only once a year, could venture beyond that place. Presumably there was a deeper or more personal manifestation of God here than the pillars. And we see other manifestations. For example, God came to Abraham as a man right before he was getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That was, of course, a theophany or a temporary manifestation of God. Moses later would see the hind parts of God as he prayed, Lord, show me thy glory. And, and I want to see you face to face. God said, you can't see my face. Nobody can see me and live, but, but I'll show you my hind parts. And the Lord showed Moses the backside of him. And in many other ways, in types and shadows, etc., did God speak to man. Hebrews chapter 1 says it like this. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So in many different ways, God spoke in many different types and shadows. He would appear until Christ came. Now, many have often thought of Christ as this guy you'd know in a crowd. You'd, you've, you've seen him portrayed as, as the one with a shining light right over his head. The immaculate, well-dressed, impressive leader of men, we all envision him as being in his earthly ministry. Now, I don't mean to pop your bubble, but Isaiah 53 and 2 does say this. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. 
And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It's no wonder they didn't recognize him as the king of kings. There was no form or comeliness. That means, in other words, there he wasn't pretty or handsome. If we choose leaders based upon how well they look, as whether we agree or whether we like it or want to admit it or not, we do. Not just leaders within the church, so it seems, but leaders on a national level and on a political level all across the board. People often choose leaders that are, that are handsome, that are striking in appearance, that strike them as a leader. But it was not so with the Messiah. No Hollywood good looks, no giant among men appearance. The idea here is that there was in his external appearance no such beauty as to lead them to look with interest and attention upon Christ. Nothing that would attract them as people are attracted by dazzling and splendid objects of this world. If they saw him, they immediately looked away from him as if they were, he were unworthy of their regard. He was simply a root out of a dry ground. A cactus growing in the desert, not a beautiful spring flower that you might buy for your wife. Nobody buys their wife cactuses. I guess you could. Some women like cactuses. But when you think of a romantic gesture, it's not typically what you think of. <laughs> Although my wife might like a cactus. I don't know. She likes to grow stuff. But he was a root out of dry ground. Like the tabernacle of, of, will, of, of, of Moses in the wilderness. Did you know? You probably did that it was made of badger skins. Badger skins were tough and coarse and ugly to the appearance. If you were an outsider and not knowing the beauty of the tabernacle from the inside, if you were an outsider just looking at the tabernacle, all you would see is an ugly tent made of badger skins. Coarse. Badger skins tough and coarse. And it's hard. And so they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, of Jesus? But just by looking at him... He wouldn't have been much of anything. But if you look deeper inside the tabernacle of Moses, past the outer covering and into the holy place, you would see extreme beauty. Gold and beautiful tapestry that was interwoven by skilled artists. A gorgeous curtain called a veil of blue, purple, crimson, and white. And, and the shimmering, shining Shekinah presence of Almighty God. Perfect beauty wrapped in an ugly, plain package. As a matter of fact, not only that, but a badger skin was an unclean animal. God purposefully made sure that he was wrapped in the skins of an unclean animal. In a similar manner, he came wrapped in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that's exactly what Romans says of him, that he came in the likeness of of sinful flesh. Now, of course, we know he didn't have sin. He didn't have the nature of Adam, but he came in the likeness of it. In other words, there wasn't the nature of that Adam when he fell, but there was a likeness of it in the sense that he could be tempted and was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. You might remember, I'm sure you do, the whenever Satan tempted him, Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. For all that is in the world, those three things are not of the Father, but is of the world. Jesus had to face every single one of them. God came down as a man. He came down in, not in an animal skin, but in Adam's skin. Amen. It just, just in the same way, he hid behind 
you know, if you look at the tabernacle of Moses, you would have to look past that ugly, unclean animal skin to get to the shimmering presence of God, past the ugliness of it all, past, past the lack of beauty, past the lack of appearance. And, and, but once you looked past it, you would see beauty and you would see gold and you would see uh, you know, beautiful things there in the presence of God. So in the same manner, he came in Adam's skin. Of course, animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament. And so that would have been one reason why that tabernacle was veiled in animal skins. It symbolized a sacrifice. But he came and he put on Adam's skin so he could be the ultimate sacrifice. For as much as you know, Peter said that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We have been bought with something that is far more, uh, that is far more worthy of our worship than silver and gold. All the gold and all the silver in the world could not buy us back from the power of death. But the power of one man's life did that in a single moment. I'm grateful for that today. And so it says the word. The word was made flesh. The word word there is logos. And the spoken word of God revealed him in creation. But the living word shows him fully and completely. Let me explain what this means. Whenever, whenever God created the earth. Over and over in Genesis 1, you will hear it saying, and God said, let there be light. God did this, or God said this. God said, and as soon as he would say it, he, it would automatically appear. So the way that the Lord showed me, and I prayed about this many years ago, and this is what the Lord showed me. It's kind of like an artist painting. Do we have any painters in the house? Anybody that's, lo- you don't have to be, you know, Michelangelo. Anybody that loves to paint, even by, by number. That's, that's about as good as it gets for me. I might be able to paint by number. I can draw a stick man. I can draw a family of stick mans. I can draw that kindergarten car that we all have seen before. You know, I can, I can draw that. That's about the extent of my art, artistic abilities. Uh, you can barely read my handwriting. But, but the idea of painting is that you're expressing your emotions on a canvas. Similar to how somebody that would write musically will, will often express their emotions in a song. And that's why some songs are really sad. And some songs are really happy. And some songs uh, excite emotions in you that only that song can, can, can entice you to feel. And so it's because emotion and feeling is put into music. That's one of the reasons why we worship using, wor- of course, we always should use worship music and listen to worship music, but, but worship music uh, puts forth an atmosphere of worship and celebration. And even some songs will make you want to not celebrate, they'll make you want to repent. Not just the words, but, but how the song is sung, and even who sings it and how it's sung. And so whenever God was speaking, he was creating, but more than that, he was revealing himself. The Bible says this, creation reveals the glory and the splendor of God. So, for example, have you ever looked up in the sky at night and saw the billions and billions of stars and said, man, God must be really big? Or, or, or simply just been amazed at a beautiful sunrise or a sunset and the various colors in the clouds. 
and, and just been amazed at how wonderful God must be. So he was revealing a part of himself. And even to the even whenever he created Adam, he was he was revealing himself. Adam was made in the image of God. So and so was the woman. The woman was also made in the image of God. There is, you know, the woman expresses a part of herself about God that we can only know about God by looking at the ladies. And it's the same way with the men. So that's another Bible study. But so God was revealing himself. He was expressing himself. Similar to an artist. And so he used that. In the Hebrew, it's called the debar or the imra, which means the spoken word of God. Now we get to the New Testament. The Greek equivalent to that will be, will be logos. And in, in the Greek's mind, that meant the thought or the plan of God. So there was the spoken word of God, that, and that's how they knew God in the Old Testament. They knew him by creation. And we still know him by creation. But there was a much more fuller revelation of God that was not just the spoken word, but became the living word. And it says the word, the plan, the thought of God was made flesh. Christ was slain from the very foundation of the earth. Before any of this ever happened, before he ever said, let there be light. In the back mind of God, there was a plan of redemption. And the plan involved him taking on a cross of wood. And dying for the sins of humanity. That was the plan from the very beginning of time. That was what, what John called the Logos. He took the idea that the Greeks would be familiar with, which was the Logos. And, and he said, there is a Logos, but it's not what you think it is. It's, it's the thought, it's the plan of God that exists from the very beginning of time. And when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son into the world. Unto the world. Amen. And, and he took on flesh. So there is the living word and there is the spoken word of God. Jesus is that living word of God. When we see Jesus, we see a much more fuller revelation of God than creation will ever show of him. We see more than just the beauty of God. We see the mercy of God. We see the kindness of God. We see more than just his omnipotence in creation, but we see a God that laid down his glory and his splendor to come and, and love and win us back to him. That's the idea of the living word of God. That's the idea when whenever John said the word was made flesh, that's what he had in mind. <coughs> Self-revelation. 2 Corinthians 4 and 6 says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Moses said, Show me thy glory. And you know what God told Moses, Nobody can see my face and live. But yet, here we see the face, we see the glory of God in the face. Of Jesus Christ. The glory that Moses could not see. Because he was not covered by the blood. We see that in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians 2 and 9 says. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We're talking about where is God? Where is God? God is in Christ. He's in that son. He's in. It's the father in the son. If you have the son, you've got the father. If you've got the father, you've got the son. If you deny one, you deny the other. One's flesh and one's spirit. We wouldn't say the Father died, because that's not scriptural, because that would be like saying the eternal spirit of God would die, but yet we would say the Son of God died. And that references the, you know, the idea of that, the, that God put on flesh. Uh, so, so the Godhead, you know, we talk about the Godhead, it's not three. It's not just three aspects of God. 
There's nowhere in Scripture the word Godhead. This word Godhead in the Greek, you know, you know, in the old older English Bibles, it just says Godhood, and it just simply means anything that makes God be God. Yeah, if you're narrowing God down to three, then you're limiting His ability and His power, because He's more than Father, He's more than Son, He's more than Holy Spirit. He's counselor. He's the mighty God. He's alpha. He's omega. He's everything from Genesis to Revelation. He's all of those things. It's not three and one. It's not one and three. It's God in Christ. And when you see Christ, you see 100% of God. Amen. Philip asked the same question that we're asking this morning. Where is God? Philip, uh, John 14 and 8. Philip said, and Lord, show us the Father. Where is he at? Keep talking about the father this and the father that. And Jesus said this, have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you do not know who I am? He that hath seen me hath seen the father. Because when you see Christ, you see the full revelation of God. That's what John 1 means when it says the son who is in the bosom of the Father, hath declared him. In other words, he hath fully showed forth. When you looked at Jesus Christ, you see the entire revelation of all that God is in his character. God came down in a body prepared as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. The eternal spirit put on a human body like a root out of dry ground. He sprang out as the root of David. And so Revelation says he is the root and the offspring of David. He's the root of David, but he, but he also is the offspring of David. Not just the offspring of David, but he's the root. Of, he was before David came, and he came out of David at the same time. He came out as a man, but he was before David as God, Jehovah God, the Almighty Lord God. From the outside, he was a, pl a plain paper package. No beauty, no comeliness, but to us who are saved, he is altogether lovely and worthy of our adoration and praise. Hebrews 2 and 8 says, You have put all in subjection all things under his feet, for in that he hath put in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. In other words, God, God's original intent was for everything to be in subjection under man. Man lost his authority. Christ came won it back. And so eventually everything is going to be under the authority of Christ, but we're not seeing that yet. What are we seeing today? Sin, a worldwide pandemic, civil unrest, disease, famine, war, economic turmoil. Why? Because everything is not yet subject to the perfect will of God. But the writer of Hebrews says, we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. We are living in the age of grace where, yes, we are seeing a lot of pandemics and a lot of turmoil and a lot of unrest. We don't know what lies around the next corner. It's not going to surprise me, frankly. Whatever it is, it's probably not going to surprise me. We have seen everything in, uh, in 2020, so it seems, and so nothing will surprise me yet. But yet at the same time, we're also seeing Jesus. We're seeing grace multiplied. We're seeing that the world can come to Christ and can be saved and can be filled and can be delivered from their addictions and the bondages of their sin. Amen. And lastly, as we close, Revelation 1-1, as we stand. You know, Revelation, you know, people often talk about it as a horrible book. It's an apocalyptic book. But what you need to remember about Revelation is the first five words. The revelation 
of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of chaos, but through the chaos, there is an unveiling of Christ. And I will tell you now, before the world sees him in judgment, before they see him coming in brass, they will see him, they have already seen him coming in a manger. And they will see him filled with grace. This world is getting ready to have an unveiling of Jesus Christ like never before. We are living in the most exciting times in the entire world. This church cannot and will not be stopped. No politician, no no Senate, no Congress, no world economic whatever can stop what God is going to do in the church today. Let's lift our hands today and let's thank God for that right now. Let your voices out for a moment. Hallelujah.
thank you, God, that you will never be defeated, that you hold all the power in the palm of your hands. Hallelujah. you are God, you are in control. Thank you, Jesus. He is our refuge and strength. He is more than
to be in his house this morning. I'm so thankful that I have a place that I can come and I can dwell with him and I can find rest from every one of life's situations. There is no weariness or weakness in his presence. But Jesus, we know that there is joy here. We just want to be where you are, God. Let that be your prayer this morning. God, I want to be where you are. That's all I need, Jesus, is to be with you. Oh, yes, the world. 